Thanks for downloading the latest episode of the Fantasy Animation Podcast, an online educational resource dedicated to the overlap and exchange between fantasy storytelling and the medium of animation. You can visit us at fantasy-animation.org and get to grips with our archive of podcast episodes or check out our many blog posts that feature editorials, sequence analyses, film, TV, book and conference reviews and even reflections by animators and practitioners. You can also find us on a variety of social media from Twitter and Facebook to Reddit and Instagram or you can drop us a line at fananimresearch at gmail.com to join in the conversations, share a blog post idea or even offer your own take on the fantasy animation relationship. So please do sit back, relax, and enjoy the show. Hello listeners, and welcome back to another episode of the Fantasy Animation Podcast. I am Alex Sargent. And I am Chris Holiday. And this week we are talking about the Buster Keaton silent film classic, Sherlock Jr., a film that I suspect a few people who are uh, regular subscribers to our feed will be thinking, is this an animation or a fantasy? So let's just get that straight out of the way. It is. It's both, uh, potentially, if you think about it in different ways. Um, as a fantasy movie, it speaks to a lot of interesting debates surrounding uh, the relationship between um, spectatorship and the cinematic apparatus. It speaks to lots of sort of primal fantasies of cinema and what cinema is as an object and as an experience. Um, so so whilst it's perhaps not in the genre of fantasy, it speaks to loads of different sort of theoretical debates about the imagination, its place in cinema, um, identification, and all this kind of stuff that I'm sure we can unpack over the course of the discussion. Chris, is it an animation? Uh, yes and no, both equally at the same time and at once. It's uh, I, same with you. It's it's not kind of speaking to animation. Um, explicitly but actually Keaton as a figure who inspired a lot of sort of early animators um the fact that Buster Keaton's films were screened for animators as inspiration there's sort of a, an entwined genealogy I think between early silent cartoons and early film stardom within animation and figures like um Keaton and, and to a lesser extent Chaplin um and so yeah and obviously obviously of course the relationship that, that Keaton has with uh, kind of stunt work and effects you know there's a couple of really standout well there's plenty of standout effect sequences in the in the film there's a couple that perhaps are um, have been picked up, I think, within within animation studies and, and stuff like that. So uh, yeah, it is it is both not a not an animation and very much an animation. Great. And if that weren't enough ideas to play with, we have a very special guest joining us on the podcast this week, uh, Professor Peter Adamson from the LMU in Munich. Uh, Peter is uh, an expert in uh, Islamic philosophy in the uh, late uh, antiquity and classical era, although he's probably going to pick me up on that because my philosophy is, is somewhat lacking. But he perhaps is even better known for his podcast, The History of Philosophy, uh, subtitle without any gaps um, of which I believe he's currently in the early Italian renaissance um, and I'm excited to see uh, what happens next because I'm an avid listener and a big fan of his podcast and I'm delighted to bring him on the show. Peter thanks for coming on uh, the episode. Thanks so much for inviting me. I'm glad someone's finally invited me onto a podcast to talk about what I really care about which is Buster Keaton. Well, this is this is actually. I'm glad you've said that, Peter, because essentially, I just I am a I am a fan of your podcast, and and it's one of the um uh, things that made me think about doing podcasts in an academic context. Uh, and I was listening to your episodes, and you just kept making references to Buster Keaton throughout um, your various explanations of Aristotelian logic to uh, Platonic sort of metaphysics, and I was um, becoming more and more convinced that you were sending me some signals down the line. So I thought I had to get in touch and ask you to come on and talk about Buster Keaton. So uh, what is it about Keaton that, that means that you speak about him so much on a podcast that 
you know, from first glance might have nothing to do with his um, with his slapstick comedy. Well, in general, in my podcast, there are a few running jokes. Like I have a lot of references to giraffes as well, for example. Mm-hmm. And, and almond croissants, if I remember. And right. almond croissants, yes. Yeah. And these are not necessarily, I mean, in the case of giraffes and almond croissants, it's not like those are intrinsically philosophically important topics. Um, they're just things I'm enthusiastic about. I also have, you know, jokes about James Brown and Parliament Funkadelic and other things I'm sort of into. Uh, in the case of Buster Keaton, though, actually, you can connect philosophy to his films quite readily, and maybe above all to the film we're going to be talking about, which is Sherlock Jr. Uh, can you can you unpack that a little bit for us, for those perhaps who are listening, uh, unaware of the philosophical importance of something like, um, you know, a supposedly frivolous but marvellously entertaining slapstick comedy from the 1920s. Um, I think what you're saying speaks to a lot of debates that are happening in film studies and film theory at the moment. But but what do you find philosophically interesting about um, Sherlock Jr. and Keaton more broadly? Well, I guess that um, Keaton in general, so obviously he's a pioneer of cinema, right? So if you're thinking about the philosophical nature of cinema as an aesthetic product, then it makes a lot of sense to look at silent film because you're getting what you might think that you're getting something like cinema in its purest form a lot of people think that about silent cinema and uh one aspect of that is that silent movies because the because the medium was new they often reflect on the nature of cinema itself in a very kind of direct way of course uh and maybe in some sense all cinema does this and uh we can think about later movies that are about movies or about Hollywood or whatever. Um, But this is probably the best example of a silent comedy, which is just directly about the relationship between cinematic experience and real life. Um, Maybe we should say for those who haven't actually watched it, what basically happens. So it's 44 minutes long and 24 minutes out of the 44 are a story within a story. So there's like an outer frame and an inner frame. The outer frame is a fairly generic narrative in which a young man played by Buster Keaton, who's a film projectionist, falls in love with a girl, or actually he's already in love with the girl, I guess when the film starts, we don't see them fall, him fall in love with her. He goes to her house and is framed for stealing the pocket watch of her father by this cad who's sort of his rival for her affections. Um, and it so happens that he is, uh, uh, the, the young man wants to be a detective. He's always reading this book called how to be a private detective. And so he, um, tries to figure out who stole the pocket watch. Um, but instead the receipt for the watch gets planted on him. So he's accused of having stolen it and he goes away, dejected, goes back to the film theater where he works, the cinema where he works, falls asleep and then has a dream sequence in which he literally steps into the movie that's being played in the cinema that's being projected right then. And in the inner story, he plays this sort of master detective called Sherlock Jr., hence the title of the film. And in the inner story, he solves a very similar crime where what's being stolen is a necklace of pearls rather than a pocket watch. And he figures out who did it, uh, saves the girl from the bad guys um and then flees and uh 
during their flight, they wind up in a car which starts sinking in the water and the experience of drowning inside the dream wakes him back up. And then at the very end, the girl comes back to tell him that he's that she's figured out that he didn't steal the watch and they have a kind of romantic moment and that's the end. So one interesting thing about the movie is that um, it's the inner story is slightly longer than the outer story. So it's almost exactly half and half. It was originally apparently attended, intended to be a five reel feature, which I guess would have been about an hour long, but he actually cut it down to uh, four reels, which means that it's almost two reels per frame. So the outer story is about two reels worth and the inner story is about two reels worth. So about 20 plus minutes per story. The the thing with the film, what working with cinema. So you said it's sort of um, there was obviously subsequently a long history of films within films with that sort of meta structure where films are about filmmaking and kind of filmmaking practice. I was actually saying um, we're actually talking a little bit before we started that this is a film that uh, I was returning to, but after a long time, and it was a film that Alex and I actually taught in another life um, in relation to sort of classical film theory, and actually a lot of the things that you were saying about the, the evident pleasures of the film that are rooted in this sort of double structure where you have a framing story and then you have um, a fiction within a fiction that sort of duplicates and mirrors the framing story. Um, I guess it relates to a lot of Right, you know, it's very much. It's a good film, I think, to talk about with regards to film status as as an art, but also um, the kinds of writing in the twenty years before the film that was kind of coming out. Um, this sort of post-romantic prose about the new uh, aesthetic experience of cinema, this sort of emphasis on intense emotion, um, a degree of apprehension as well, I think, among writers in the sort of first two decades of the of the 20th century about what film could kind of be and what concepts it was mobilising. Writing at the time was very kind of unsystematic um, and kind of chaotic. It related film to psychology. And actually all of those values, I remember thinking about with the with the kind of students and sort of thinking that this is a really perfect film for playing out some of those debates that were happening around the fear the trepidation the excitement the experience of uh, ostensibly a medium that was that was only kind of just coming into its third decade really so um it was a really nice film for for kind of me to re- revisit and i'd yeah the way that you described that the structure i'd not i'd not realized that the 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 inner story, if you like, was longer than the framing story. Um, and actually that's that perhaps positions the film more evidently. We say this a lot on the podcast about, you know, it's about animation or it's about, this is a very much, Alex, I think a film about, I think we're justified in saying it's a film about uh, the pleasures and the, and the perils of, of cinema. Yeah. And maybe the most obvious um, thing to comment on there is the comparison between film and dreaming right? Because yeah. the, he steps into the film as a dream. So, it, it, I mean, in a way, it's actually not a fantasy story in the way that something like Star Wars is a fantasy story, because it's not like, and in fact, it's not like the movie that is always mentioned as having been inspired by it, which is Woody Allen's Purple Rose of Cairo. Yeah. yeah. So what happens in Purple Rose of Cairo is that it, it reverses the idea. So someone steps out of the frame or out of the film and becomes starts walking around in real life, right? Instead of someone from real life going into the movie, but actually in purple Rose of Cairo, which I haven't seen in a long time, but I'm pretty sure that the idea there is just that that happens, right? So it's a kind of impossible premise. Someone walks out of a movie, right? Whereas like technically speaking, nothing 
in this movie that is impossible because he's dreaming and you could dream that you walked into a movie. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Um, and uh, that that's actually something that uh, people who write about Keaton are very interested in, by the way, that the question of whether what he's showing is impossible or not, because he himself was interested in that question, like whether it's OK to do impossible gags or gags that are surrealist, which you do see him do in some of his uh, early shorts. But then they um, go. He sort of moves away from doing literally impossible things like sort of magic trick kind of gags to things that are more rooted in real possibility, even if they're very kind of over the top in terms of real possibility, like houses that spin in, around in a, in a hurricane or something like that. Um, but the idea of sort of using like film trickery, like the sort of thing where you might like say, draw a hook on a wall and then hang your hat on the hook, right? He, he kind of moves away from that kind of humor um, I wonder whether that's because animation is it, it takes over, and I've, and there's lots of things that I'd like to to kind of say about this. Yeah, this entwined genealogy and 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 the relationship, Keaton's influence on early animation, silent film stars, I think more broadly influencing cartoon stars. Um, there's a really interesting relationship between Buster Keaton, obviously Steamboat Bill versus Steamboat Willie. Like, there's a nice little play there with with the first um, sound cartoon from um, from Disney. Um, Felix the Cat, another important early animation star um and buster keaton and felix have this interesting relationship that keaton i think paid pat sullivan who was the creator of, of felix to uh, essentially put keaton's mannerisms into felix the cat um as a way of sort of marketing so the the the, the hands behind the back pacing up and down when he's thinking through a problem is the thing that connects Felix the Cat with Sherlock Jr. It's the or Buster Keaton because Buster Keaton allegedly then asked Pat Sullivan to put those put those kind of gestures and details into the Felix the Cat and and sort of create a relationship between the between the two characters. Um, <clears throat> but Keaton himself, I wonder whether the, the the progressive the move that you're suggesting his progressive move towards uh, things that were more believable or probable or less fantastic is a sort of as animation expands into this industrial um, art form and animators are playing with the expressiveness of the cartoon form, the creativity, the notions of impossibility, it's sort of, I don't know, does it does it then push Keaton away from the, those kinds of gags and he then starts to recoil and begins to be a little bit more sort of quote-unquote realistic, sort of allowing animation to... To, to take that kind of surrealist comedy that you're suggesting to extremes. And then he recoils from that. Yeah. I think in, in his mind, it was maybe more about um, moving from uh, just gag based movies, yeah. purely just gag, 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 like joke, 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 visual joke, one after another. And it doesn't matter how the visual joke works as long as it's uh, funny. Right. He moves away from that to longer narrative movies and um, you can really chart this in the chronology of his output in the 1920s. Um, and in fact, Sherlock Jr., among other things, is important because it is a, tr a transitional uh, feature for him, or even the transitional feature. So if you look at his output in the very early 20s, like between 1920 and 1924, you have all of his shorts. So he makes about 20 shorts, which actually in, in some ways are my favorite uh, films by him apart from Sherlock Jr. because it kind of it keeps all of what I like about the shorts while also moving into this bigger um, frame so to speak of a longer feature um, and then in um, 
around 23, 24, he starts making longer features, which are uh, an hour long usually. Um, so he makes the three ages. He makes Sherlock Jr. He makes the navigator. Incredibly, Sherlock Jr. and the navigator were made in the same year, right? <laughs> which would sort of be like if uh, if Martin Scorsese had made Raging Bull and Goodfellas in the same year or something, <laughs> right? Um, and then uh, in by 1926, I think he's making The General, which is his most famous film. Um, and something like the general is very much driven by plot. It's very narrative. Whereas the shorts are usually just a kind of, um, basic idea setup in which gags can happen. And the gag rate is very fast. So you might have a visual joke every 20, 30 seconds, right? So it's almost like a Simpsons episode in terms of how fast the humor comes. And in the, uh, longer narrative movies, the gag rate is lower, but the gags are more embedded in a complex story and there's more sense of character, right? And I think that the move away from the impossible gag to the possible gag is partially so that you can have a believable or more or less believable story for these longer narrative movies. Mm. I just, uh, before before I uh, ask Alex about fantasy, um. Is it, and you'll know this better than me, I was reading up about Buster Keaton's relationship to animation and actually I noted The Three Ages, a film that you just mentioned. Um, so that is, does, is there some stop motion or some animation? Because that's, that's if I remember, that's the film where it's, isn't it the sort of satire or the, not the parody of Intolerance, but it's it's a sort of, um, I don't know, a, a reference to, to D.W. Hugh Griffith's um, Intolerance. Um, but I was trying to look and see whether Buster Keaton used any animation in anticipation to talk about Sherlock Jr. I was thinking about, do, do his films use any animation? The only example I could potentially find, but I can't kind of confirm it, is the the opening section of The Three Ages where the kind of prehistoric Stone Age section where he stands on the back of a brontosaurus. Yeah, so that's right. Is, I mean, is Keaton... I, and I and I, maybe this is maybe this is my turn to ask the impossible question. But does Keaton, as Keaton's films, does he use? Obviously, he plays with techniques, and you talked about um, kind of, in, I guess, certain kinds of optical effects. But is there examples of that kind of animation, such as in the Three Ages? Is he is he somebody who perhaps uses it in a way in, that we've sort of forgotten, and and maybe we could reclaim Keaton and his role in? In animation or maybe that's important. i don't think so actually i think <laughs> okay. in fact i think it, in a way it's very important that keaton doesn't do that yeah because one thing that's even true of the shorts and is certainly true of sherlock jr is the emphasis on the idea that you're actually seeing him do something yeah um and actually if, if you don't mind me giving you a slightly long answer to, oh, no, uh, we, to we, what we you just that. asked yeah, yeah. I, I, I think it's interesting here to to think about um something that's related to animation because it calls attention to the artificiality of the cinematic experience. And this is the idea of the cut. Mm. So um, like, you know, cutting away from one scene to another uh, where there's an interruption of the visual stream. And then we somehow humans are were apparently all ready to immediately interpret this with no problem right so you can you can show a silent movie apparently to someone in in 1915 you can cut from one room to another and they'll immediately understand what's going on and they'll even be able to interpret whether time is supposed to have passed or not and it's and one you can you could write a a whole journal article about the way Sherlock Jr deals with the idea of the cut 
and here I'd like to contrast two scenes. Um, so the most obvious case is the scene where he first steps into the film. Yeah. And um, the people always talk about Sherlock Jr. as, oh, he steps into a movie and they forget that actually the there's like a full maybe minute or more of the movie where it's more like he's trying to enter the movie and can't. So if what, what happens is he literally he walks up through, you actually see him walk up the center aisle of the th- cinema, sit in the front row watching the movie. And then he steps up and tries to walk and just walks into the frame, which is no big deal. Like he just like just going up a step, but a door gets shut in his face and he winds up going back out of the movie and he makes another attempt. And then there's this incredible montage which is surely in the top five most famous things that Keaton ever did, where he's in these different locations, for example, on the top of a mountain in a cage surrounded by two lions uh, on a rock in the ocean. And it just cuts immediately from one scene to the next. And his body stays in position while the environment around him changes through the cut. Um, And it's supposed to look like he's still there completely unchanged. Actually, he moves very slightly because of course you can't do this perfectly without modern special effects, um, but it's still pretty convincing. And the, and so what he's done there is he's really like made a joke out of the idea of the cinematic cut. Um, something that's worth noting there, by the way, is that the scene that sort of flickering back and forth between these different environments makes no sense whatsoever in terms of the movie he's just stepped into because the movie he's just stepped into is like this domestic comedy in a, in a wealthy house. Right. And when he first tries to step into the movie, he tries to step into that house and can't. And when he becomes Sherlock jr, after the scene with all the cutting, he is the detective trying to solve a a theft, which has occurred in the house where the real movie is set that he's been projecting from the, in the cinema, right? Mm. Um, whereas, so in a way that also calls attention to the artificiality of what we're watching, right? It doesn't make any sense actually, even within the terms of the inner frame, right? So and now if we contrast that scene to another scene that happens within the inner frame, which is probably the most jaw-dropping scene in the movie actually, and this is the scene where he plays billiards. So the reason I say it's jaw dropping is that when you watch it today, you still don't really know how it could have been done. So to make a long story short, what happens is that one of the bad guys has put an exploding billiard ball on a table uh, and invited Sherlock Jr. Buster Keaton's character to play billiards and then leaves the room because he's expecting Sherlock Jr. to be blown to bits by the exploding billiard ball. And then we get this long take in which Sherlock Jr. plays billiards and plays three consecutive shots where the billiard balls keep whizzing around the the 13 ball, which is the one that will explode without ever touching it. And the reason why it's jaw dropping is that you can see that there's no cut, right? So he, he plays all three shots and they're all pretty complicated. And the 13 ball must come close to being touched by another ball, something like 25 or 30 times in the course of this, you know, 45 second long bit. And there, the reason why it's such an amazing stunt is precisely that he doesn't cut, right? So you can actually see him doing it. 
um, and this this is why I think it's relevant to your question about animation, because so much of um, what's supposed to impress us in Keaton's movies is this feeling you're actually seeing him really do this. And there's, despite the um, feeling of artificiality that you get from something like the initial step into the movie, there's also a really important way that he plays around with the idea of non-artificiality or like authenticness. So him actually playing billiards and like the virtuosity of him being able to play three consecutive billiard shots, deliberately avoiding touching this one ball, even while all the other balls are whizzing around it. Yeah. Well, the, I suppose the, the kind of the cut is animate, you know, the animation and editing and animation is an invisible, it hides the cuts and so forth. So uh, yeah, I've, I've just written down the cut because I, th- I, I sort of, the things that are disclosed to us the when you try and find certainly i think in a lot of effects cinema you're trying to find the joins and trying to find the seams so part of the pleasure um i think of the scene certainly when he goes into that i've lots to say or lots of things to ask about the the moment where he jumps first into the film and, and jumps into cinema is obviously the emphasis on sort of medium specificity but but alex you were you looked like you were about to say something oh, in response i'm, I'm going to try and match peter's answer with an equally long response because i've got about a thousand thoughts yeah i know me too <laughs> invented some sort of academic tennis game here um yeah uh which is that you know i think the sequences that you mentioned there and i'm you know how can we not talk about that moment where he enters into the film because it's it's so fascinating on a sort of you know well at least on three levels so let's see if there's any more but like for me like that sequence um is fascinating in terms of as you say what it's doing with ideas of of narrative cohesion and storytelling uh, and the film itself sort of plays with this we've talked already about sort of how uh keaton is working through in the 20s how to integrate sort of gags into narrative and moving from a sort of gag based um logic to a to a narrative based logic and there's a there's a film um theorist called um called henry jenkins who talks about um you know the 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 dichotomy between the, the i think he calls it the gag and the chase you know that the, the the gag is a is a moment uh, and it and it is justified by being alone, and the chase requires a sort of sort of progressive through line, and the film is constantly playing with that. And then in this moment where he steps into the cinema, you're quite right. The gag of him jumping from frame to frame disrupts any sense of narrative cohesion because there's no reason why all these locations are appearing in front other than it's funny, and that's absolutely fine in the, in the context of the film. And the film, you know, that is what his films do a lot is that they suspend logic in favor of of the gag, and that's why I think you know comedy and and fantasy often uh, can go hand in hand because you know if you think about some of the sequences, you know, even something as simple as the a bit early on in the sort of framing story where um he someone loses um the love interest of his loses a dollar and he picks it up right and she says i think i've lost a dollar and he says can you describe it to me and there's a sort of you know relatively throwaway gag but it's playing with you know um you know ideas of of i guess you know something you talk about on your podcast or at least in the bits i've been listening to peter of sort of you know uh, the problem of universality and and um and, you know when is a dollar uh, matched to its sort of universal concept of a dollar in in a second you know and and comedy is disrupting you know sort of a, a rather superficial logic that we all live our life by in favor of something that's far more primal and far more enjoyable and in that moment on when he steps into the film it's sort of doing that with cinema because what are we watching here we're watching 
we're watching a film within a film, but the film he's existing in a space that's both in the film but also outside the film. Yeah, he hasn't slipped into the diegesis of the movie. He slipped into this sort of weird world in between. Um, you know, there's lots of debates in cinema about, you know, the long take versus the cut formalism, which would be sort of like, you know, the Eisensteinian montage where you, you know, obsessively cut everything together to form this sort of new reality out of the the bits of filmmaking arsenal you've assembled versus the long take, the sort of, you know, Italian neorealism, let the, let the mise-en-scene be and let the film sort of be unmediating in its representation. And what you've got here is this sort of weird world where... He's existing in a space that's neither in the real world, neither nor in the cinema, but but somehow in both. So it, the film that you know, couple of minute sequence is asking questions about logic. It's asking questions about our relationship to cinema, and it's asking some really interesting sort of I don't know deeper philosophical questions about sort of I don't know time movement. Uh, the you know uh, Deleuze is very much a sort of philosopher that cinema people are playing with at the moment, mainly because he's written quite a lot on philosophy and, and the idea of, of cinema at its root, either ask questions of movement or ask questions of time. And in that moment, all of them are up in the air. And yet all these really sort of quite profound and quite complicated ideas that I'm struggling to articulate are just completely stitched together by this overwhelming logic of just sort of euphoric joy in in this disruption and i guess that's the the sort of key isn't it is that what he does and what his what comedy can do is provide a euphoric joy in the disruption of order and it doesn't replace it with a new order it just enjoys the disruption and that's at the heart of what's going on here that i find really sort of interesting about i guess silent comedy in particular because it's so related to movement and 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 time that's not even an impossible question. That's an impossible set of statements. But um, it's I'm glad you've mentioned it. it's such a really fascinating area, a bit, bit of the movie that you could write. Es- well, people have written essays and essays and essays about and will continue to do so for those very reasons. Hi, everybody. I hope you're enjoying these philosophical discussions about Sherlock Jr. I'm just going to pause the podcast here momentarily because I need a quick favour from you all. This website is run completely on the back of Chris and I's efforts in academia as well as an army of really willing volunteers who've just joined our editorial team. You can find out more at fantasy-animation.org. We do this completely for free and as part of our academic duties uh, and we don't expect any payment or any um, acknowledgement other than for you to listen and enjoy these episodes. Um, We want you to use these as valuable resources so please do enjoy them and use them in the world. We could do with a few quick favours though. If you do like these resources and think that we should be making more of them what we need you to do is the following we need you to subscribe through whatever platform you're using Um, subscribe will increase the visibility of the podcast and will create more listeners so please hit that subscribe button now we need you to review us particularly if you're an apple podcast user but if any um, functionality will allow that on your chosen platform to please give us a quick five star rating tell us what you like about the podcast give us some feedback again it helps our visibility and if you're an academic a writer a budding critic a budding animator a professional animator a vfx artist out there and would are inspired by the conversations and want to contribute to the blog you know where you can find us fancy-animation.org Perhaps you're now philosophically inclined to think about how your own work acts as philosophy. Get in touch. We'd be delighted to hear from you. So subscribe, review, and submit a blog. Once you've done all three of those things, you can get back to the show. Yeah, the, so um, let me uh, just latch on to one thing that, that's sort of uh, behind a lot of what you said, which is this, I think there's a natural assumption that um, the contrast that Keaton is interested in in this movie 
is the contrast between cinema and real life, mm-hmm. right? So he, so within the whole movie, he starts out in real life, which is him as a projectionist, and he steps into a movie. Okay, and then we can make the obvious point that the the real life part is already a movie, so it's a movie within a movie, right? Okay, fine. Um, but actually, I think that that's not right. I think that the contrast that Keaton was uh, maybe not explicitly in his own mind interested in, but the contrast he was really playing with is the contrast between cinema and stage theater. So, and here we need to remember that Keaton uh, grew up as uh, the member of a traveling vaudeville troupe, the three Keatons, namely him and his parents, and that he literally um, he literally spent his childhood on stage being kicked around the stage by his father. So there's this famous idea that the way he became the great stone face and learned not to show emotional affect was that it was funnier when his father pretended to abuse him on stage and he didn't show any uh, sign of pain, right? He just sort of com- took it completely stoically, right? So um, he actually is do- in Sherlock Jr. and in a lot of the other silence in the shorts, he's taking gags that he has seen in vaudeville or performed in vaudeville and putting them on the screen. And in fact, I wanted to read you something, uh, which is his own account of how Sherlock Jr. came to be written or, or came to be maybe written is the wrong word, but invented. Yeah. So he is talking about, um, how he had, there was a whole bunch of vaudeville gags that he wanted to get into a movie. So he says, I laid out some of these gags and showed the technical man how to get the sets built for the things I had to do. When I got that batch of stuff together, my cameraman, Elgin Leslie, said, you can't do it and tell a legitimate story because there are illusions and some of them are clown gags, some Houdini, some Ching Ling Fu. It's got to come in a dream. To get what we're after, you've got to be a projectionist in a projecting room in a little local small town picture theater and go to sleep after you've got the picture started. Once you fall asleep, you visualize yourself as one of the important characters in the picture you're showing. You go down out of the projection room, walk up there on the screen and become part of it. Now you tell your whole story. So this on the one hand goes back to what we were saying before about the dream and the film within the film licensing the use of, of sort of impossible gags. So for example, there's a gag, which is really astounding actually, still when you see it, where he jumps through the abdomen of his assistant and disappears and the the assistant then walks away so it looks like he's sort of teleported by jumping through the guy's stomach um and it turns out that that is a gag that was actually done on stage uh i think even by keaton's father who also appears in the movie as another character and the idea is that the fact that we're in the film within a film slash dream gives him license to do that, right? Um, but it, but so part of, part of what I'm trying to say is that he's trying to take a bunch of vaudeville ideas and put them in the context of a movie and that the, and actually it wasn't even his idea, it was his cameraman's idea that the dream would give him the ability to do that. But on the other hand, um, if you think about the scene where he steps into the movie, what you're actually seeing when you watch Sherlock Jr. in that scene is the inside of a cinema with an audience and an, uh, an aisle going up the front. You can even see the pianist who plays along to the silent movie, right? Because of course there was live music. 
And then he literally walks up onto stage. And on the stage, what you see is a big black border. And beyond that, a scene in a house, which is the scene of the movie inside the movie, right? And the way that they created that effect was to light the two spaces differently. So you've got a very brightly lit interior scene past the movie frame, which makes it look like that's a movie that the audience is watching. But actually what they're watching is a play, <laughs> right? And so they're literally watching some people on, on a stage. And so actually what he does there, in fact, is not step into a movie, but step into a play by walking up onto stage, right? And that I, but, and then that is disrupted by the moment we talked about before with the cuts, right? Because when he, when he, um, when that begins, he's in a garden with a little bench and it cuts away from the garden to, I don't know, the mountain or the lions or something. And then you get all these cuts, bang, 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 bang. And that is where it really moves away from a theatrical context to a purely cinematic context. Cause of course that's something that could never happen in a vaudeville uh, stage performance. Well, this is the tension between. I mean, you're exactly right. This is the tension in in kind of early film theory about the relationship between film and other arts. So you have on the one hand, film as a new medium. It's a new phenomena um, of at that point just images and when ultimately then part of its novelty will then be the synchronization of sound um obviously it raises broader kind of ontological questions about being but also how cinema um uh how cinema changes art how it changes life but then you also have its status as a form of entertainment and within that both its specificity or the tension between specificity medium specificity and then intermediality so how does what is cinema's relationship to the cinema and the other art so what's its relationship to painting to music to theater and these are all things these are all debates that are obviously being had right at the start even though film is grounded um in in these kind of photochemical photographic processes these are sorts of debates that are being had about what cinema could do should do um should it just be filmed theater that ultimately becomes a criticism especially with the synchronization of, of sound um film should exploit its its own sort of language and so for me exactly that uh, you're right that he steps into a play or at the level of production he steps into a play and then and then the play becomes a film and the way that we know it becomes a film is because of the cut exactly as you say we know we know that something's not quite right because time and space are suddenly changing in a way that as you say audiences at the time haven't had parallel editing or the idea of narrative for that long so suddenly when we're getting these cuts between time and space um normally in it's it's in service of a kind of cohesive linearity or certainly that there's this happening and then time has passed and this is happening and but also this might be happening simultaneously the cuts at the start when he jumps into the film or jumps into the play and it becomes a film are deliberately illogical and deliberately sort of um manipulative in a way that i think as, as you said earlier alex the sort of celebration is just a sort of euphoria of celebration that this is a medium um because up to that point we've had superimposition effects so when he first falls asleep and sort of steps out of his body and then he picks up his hat off of the and it's still on there but he's wearing and he's sort of this sort of ghostly apparition um when he gets into the film and suddenly becomes at the mercy of editing 
we have this really sort of playful interrogation of reality as a constructed illusion and and how our experience of reality is always some kind of trick so when he jumps into the the film and is suddenly at the mercy of the editing um we get the sense that reality is this kind of constructed illusion and 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 i was so i was looking looking at stuff on the film and and it's cited actually in a in a book about um animated space about how animation is you know our experience of reality and animation is always some kind of trick and 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 there's a footnote in a chapter on pixar so it's a book um, by jp talot called animating space there is a footnote to this bit of sherlock jr and i thought that was a really interesting this idea of sort of the formalism that alex is describing reality um uh, is being constructed uh, and so our experience of that reality is always always some kind of trick and well just to jump in on that and it's interesting that the moment it stops being a play and starts being a cinema i like how you put that chris is that it requires of us the spectator um an extra level of imaginative activity for it to to stitch it back together here comes the Um, fantasy yeah yeah it's yeah it's, it's it requires a level of fantasy it requires um okay uh, I am now even further removed from this event. It's not just a recorded event. It's an event stitched together that I'm required to sort of, um, as you're saying, Peter, sort of do that thing that we all habitually do of going, okay, we've cut to the next day and that's fine. I've suddenly time traveled, but that's okay. Mm. Um, I'm I'm going with this. Um, and, you know, there's loads of film theory from sort of Christian Metz to, to well, Christian Metz is probably the forefather of all this, um, of the sort of the ima- of cinema as rooted in the imaginary. So, it, it, yeah. So that makes that the the you know the really well known sequence even more fascinating because in a way, it's it that the gag is disrupting that sort of um, implied illusion by highlighting the cut and highlighting the absurdity of what we're being asked to sort of stitch together. Um, but it also in a way, it's sort of making it's almost celebrating it by sort of having this glorious spectacle based on the the joy of cutting. So, yeah, yeah, actually, so I think also um, might be worth pointing out a few other elements of the movie that mm-hmm. seem to thematize this idea of like stepping across a boundary, which I, again, I think really he ultimately conceives of in the first instance as the boundary between a, a stage and an audience, right? Because he's still in this kind of mostly theatrical world. Cinema is mm-hmm. so new, right? So there's a kind of um, simple example of this very early on in the outer frame when he's uh, first visiting with his girlfriend and then the the cad character the rival turns up and takes her into another room and closes the curtain of the oh, room yeah. and it's not a door it's a curtain right and so he's actually in the position of the audience looking into this room which is then cut off from him as a curtain and then he um, gets up and tears the curtain aside right so that's already uh kind of um maybe foreshadowing of what we're going to see later um, and then later on, we have this fairly amazing gag where inside in, this is now in the movie, inside the movie, the inner frame, all the bad guys are in a building and Buster plants a, uh, a dress inside what looks like a kind of white um, sort of disc, like, a, like the top of a drum, yeah. which of course, in some ways looks like a cinema screen because it's a blank white surface right and then he goes in he lets the bad guys capture him he goes in sort of talks to them for a little bit lets them threaten him then he grabs the necklace that they've stolen he jumps out through the window through that screen and turns into a woman right because the dress is concealed inside that white tarp right and so he he kind of magically 
the dress goes on to him. So this was another gag that you could imagine being done on a vaudeville uh, show, in a, in a vaudeville show. But it actually um, gives us another case of him like moving from one space into another and reality changing when you move across that boundary. And again, it's always like this, this sort of uh, comparison between the curtain of a theater and the screen of a cinema. Um, of course, in, a, in cinemas in those days, they actually had curtains in front of the screen as well, right? So, and sometimes they still do this, right? They, they pull the curtain aside and then they start projecting the movie on the screen. So that idea that the, the curtain or the screen or both are this kind of um, boundary between these two spaces, like real life and uh, cine- the cinematic world or the audience and the stage. I think that's a, a theme that runs right through the whole movie. But I suppose that, yeah, and it, but it, it sort of raises questions then about depth as well, because I suppose one of the the sort of tenets of um, elements of, of sort of classical film theory is this is this ter- this kind of psychological um, process that the spectator that everything has to do with the mental operations of the spectator, the interplay between the camera, the screen, and the spectator. Um, you have writers like Hugo Munsterberg training as a psychologist, trying to understand the mythology of early cinema, um, trying to imp- interested in the, in the impact that the film has on the mind of the spectator. The the sort of I'm at, I'm at I'm looking at a flat screen, but I'm seeing workers leaving the factory, and I'm seeing people coming towards me, and 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 actually it's significant then that he when he, when buster keaton first goes into the it goes into the film he walks from the front of the the front or the back of the the, the 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 near to us the back of the cinema moves forward and then jumps through directionally away from us and so he's moving further and further away um and there's lots of you know if you think about his famous gags i don't i don't know the films i must admit but when he's standing and the building falls on top of him steve opel jr yeah yeah so there's the, the the idea of depth and when he's sitting on the front of the train and he throws a um uh wooden block onto another wooden block sleeper that's the word i'm looking for throws a sleeper on another sleeper and so there's something quite the role of depth in all this that his gags are play with play with space the, another gag in the you know he jumps through the, the 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 woman's stomach and is magically has magically disappeared but things like when he's at the top when he's holding on to um that sort of railway uh barrier and then falls into the into the back of a car a lot of his a lot of his gags are about depth and I and I don't know why that is. I don't know why that is, but there's something maybe about yeah the physicality of actually seeing him do it, but also really making the most of of the screen space. His gags don't just appear on the ground. He's he's sort of moving in all in kind of all different directions. Um, so this yeah, I, I, there's sort of something in there about the construction of his gags, and I don't know whether that's connected to their vaudeville or origins potentially, but um, he's certainly embracing film as a medium in a way, and and his gags perhaps bear out that exploration. Yeah. We, I think there we have to mention one of the other most famous shots in Sherlock Jr. Where he, so what's happened is that he's on the handlebars of a motorcycle, which he thinks is being driven by his assistant, but the yeah. assistant has actually fallen off. So he's driving uh, uncontrolled on the handlebars of a motorcycle and the camera fall is somehow attached to him. Right. So the camera follows and you can see the background changing. And then to your horror, you see that what's in the distant background is a train and the train is oncoming. This actually may remind us of the famous story about the the very, very early silent movie, which is just a train coming at the audience and the audience supposedly 
ran screaming out of the theater, right? So it's like that. So the train is coming. Here comes the train. Buster's moving along, and you can track um, that the train is going to hit him. And then what happens is that the train. Uh, sorry for the spoiler alert, but that he just gets he just gets through fast enough before the train hits him, and then this is classic Buster. He he is not satisfied with that. So at the very last second, you see that he almost also gets hit by a car, right? So the train the train comes and then the car comes and then he just gets through both. And that, I think you're right that um, that's a way in which he he's really exploiting the difference between like a vaudeville stage show and cinema, because of course that is like, couldn't be a better example of something that you can only show in film. Yeah. Right. So something that's in the very far distance that some, that gets closer and closer and is suddenly right there with you um, as happens in this movie that just came out the, earlier this year, 1917, right. Yeah. With the plane that's way, way in the background. And then all of a sudden very much isn't right. So that idea of like, um, distance being collapsed, like you were saying before, time and space, right? So the the way that cinema can show time and space in a way that can't be done on a stage. And um, that ex- that scene with the train is a really good example of it. And if there's, of course, many similar jokes in, um, in uh, there's the, the brilliant gag at the end of one week, which is probably my favorite short, which I won't spoil, but there's a brilliant gag with a train um, in one week. Um, and of course, there's all the stuff that happens in the general with trains. So, he, so actually, that he seems to really be interested in trains in part because of what you just said, like yeah. the the way that they cover so much distance. All these gags of of depth and 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 I guess perhaps because we're caught talking about trains, and I can't help make the very lazy and and uh, comparison between sort of you know uh, the first sort of ten years of cinema and the one reelers and things like that. A, a thought occurs also that. One of the things that struck me watching Sherlock Jr. is how how much the audience couldn't care less that a man seems to have just walked into uh, the screen, right? And I know it's a, it's a dream, right? So we can sort of apply a little bit of dream logic to this, but they, they're just sort of sitting there and you've got all these sort of very long shots of the audience seemingly sitting there statically, just sort of pacified watching what's happening, seemingly absolutely fine with all of this whilst we're being amazed by it. Um, and it made me think of um, some work that's being done on, on sort of, you know, early cinema audiences and, and the move, physical move from sort of cinema in vaudevilles and in Nickelodeons um, into sort of the movie palaces where we see um, the film within the film being screened and where where Buster Keaton's character works in the film um, in, in Sherlock Jr. Um, and and there's, you know, I think it's uh, Miriam Hansen who talks about sort of this idea that the, that the cinematic spectator is this sort of well-behaved, passive entity that sits there very dutifully whilst the film plays in front of them is, is, a, is a sort of class-based myth of high arts that was kind of imposed upon audiences in the sort of 20s into the 30s as cinema attempted to become more respectable. And actually, there's a lot of early shorts that do, I, I, Chris will know it because he's better at remembering things than me but there he he's now looking at me like how dare you ask me this question yeah, yeah. but there's an early short where a character sitting in the cinema is sort of playing with the screen and is sort of running away when the screen comes at them and is like throwing things at the screen where at things at it and it's used as a sort of example of this unruly vaudevillian spectator that seems to have characterized a lot of early cinema reception and it almost seems like i, d- I don't know I'm, I'm perhaps reading too much into keaton's behavior 
habits, but having grown up in the vaudeville tradition, having moved from vaudeville to cinema, having seen cinema slowly migrate from a cinema, from a, from a sort of medium rooted in vaudeville, rooted in this unruly, interactive form of spectatorship into this kind of passive, gentrified medium. There's almost seemed to be a comment going on about sort of the absurdity of the audience in this moment where he's running around, you know, leaping from desert to desert, leaping, you know, doing all these literally very dangerous stunts for our enjoyment. And the audience just sits there calmly and watches on, seeming not to care the, the least amount, you know. So, so there's perhaps a class thing going on and a comment on you know the the vaudeville you know there seems to be three aesthetics at work the vaudeville the theatric and the cinematic and and it's almost sort of questioning the the rigidity of all those categories at the same time yeah the the final gag in the movie speaks to that too right so um and so what happens is at the at, at the very end so he wakes up from the dream and his uh love object turns up to like i say to to inform him that he's they know that he's innocent by the way parenthetically it's interesting and ironic that so in the in the outer frame he wants to be a detective but she's the one who solves the case right so she figures out that it was the cad and rival who stole the pocket watch and not him um he she turns up and this is actually a very brief end to the movie um it's also notable that she's already figured it out that he's innocent before the dream sequence starts. So there's no narrative tension. Like, will he be able to get the girl? Because we've already seen her figure out that it's the rival who stole the watch, right? So all that still needs to happen at the very end is that she turns up in the picture house, goes to him, says, we know that you're innocent. And then he's not sure what to do. So what does he do? He looks at the movie for guidance. And it just so happens that what's happening in the movie, which is now the real movie that's playing, no longer the dream movie, is that the hero of that movie is about to kiss the love object in the movie. And so he imitates every move that the guy makes on screen and uh, kisses her. And then there's a final gag, which I won't ruin. Um, but I, I mean, I think that, that that scene shows a couple of things. One is actually what a good actor Buster is. So if you look at the way he sort of imitates what the hero, the hero of the movie does and then looks back inquiringly at the movie like, okay, now what? And he just packs so much into his facial expressions. It's a really nice example of how good he is at, um, at using his face to project emotion and thought. But the other thing is that it, it um, sort of plays with what you were just talking about, right? It's this very passive uh, audience who, member who's now going to take guidance from the movie itself about how to behave the the so i have after a quick uh, google while you were talking the film uh, alex was referring to uncle josh at the moving picture show right. from 1906 which is uh, another one of those self-referential movies um where uh, so an early short from edison where a, a character is watching a film and reacts based on what's happening and sort of part of i think part of the the um pleasure of the film is that the spectator doesn't know how to react to the things that they are seeing as they are kind of making sense and feeling their way into what cinema uh, what cinema is, and and again, it's 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 not vaudeville, and this is why it's this is why it's so um, uh, disarming. And so the point about unruliness and the absurdity of uh, the audience, yeah, I'd forgotten about that kind of climactic sequence where we're showing a different side to the spectator screen relationship and how Buster Keaton is sort of yeah evoking and and performing. Perf 
it's ironic because we know he's a star and so he's sort of performing in a way that is mimicking this this sort of star on screen but yeah the role of the spectator on this my first note on the film is is that actually it's a it's a simple narrative and i use simple in inverted commas kind of a simple love triangle story with a series of gags at the start about choc- uh, about kind of um He's buying chocolates, isn't he? I haven't just made that up. Yeah. I can never... Because yeah. the second box of chocolates is very big for $4. But anyway. Um, and so it's a very simple premise. Upon which, And this goes back to, I guess, other debates in early cinema around spectacular narrative. But it's a very simple and effective story upon which are hung a series of intricate and elaborate and... Um, really effective gags and set pieces and effect sequences i spotted a little miniature when the car towards the end crashes into the lake i think that's a little miniature a little miniature model um we have some in-camera stuff we have some superimposition and and as you said at the start it's 44 minutes long and it's so there's 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 a lot crammed in and and yeah i beyond the self-referentiality of it it's it's obviously an effective love story and actually that's the fact that the film ends with the convergence of both the love story narrative and the role of film within that is sort of i think is an interesting interesting thing to, to sort of end on if you like yeah one one of the things he's playing with right is that the audience is familiar with that kind of love triangle story yeah and so it can just be sketched out very quickly and and I think actually um, one of the things Sherlock Jr. as a movie is about, maybe not intentionally, but it winds up being about this, is what can you and can you not expect an audience to already understand kind of intuitively. So obviously we've been talking about this the thing that you can just show someone walking into a movie and the audience in the theater doesn't react at all. And we're amazed, but we also immediately understand what's happened, right? But, but even at a simpler level within some of the gags, sometimes he will do a gag where you, the, the whole point of the gag is that you're familiar with this gag and then he subverts it. So a really simple example is that in the outer frame early on, for no reason at all, the, the rival hands him a banana. And so he obviously unpeels the banana, drops the skin on the floor and invites the rival to come over. And we all know the point of this is that you slip on banana skins, right? So the, what's supposed to happen is the rival's supposed to walk over, slip on the banana p- skin, pratfall, ha ha ha, right? But instead the rival comes over, stops just short, tells him off, turns around and goes away. And Buster gets angry and pursues him and slips on the banana skin that he himself has laid as a trap, right? So that's not a great gag but it is a gag that presupposes that you understand the role of banana skins in gag humor or in gag comedy. And I think that that's um, kind of uh, true. It's actually true. A lot of Buster's movies that he will, one thing that's brilliant about him is that he will not just do a gag, but he'll do a gag about a gag or he'll do a gag that has multiple steps and gets more and more um, complicated. Uh, Another case would be the, the dollar bill routine you mentioned before. Mm. So that's already funny in the first step, which is he's sweeping up, finds a dollar and someone comes along and says, did you find a dollar? And he says, describe it. And she, she makes, she says, you know, shows with her fingers how big the dollar bill was. And there was an Eagle on it. And so he surrenders the dollar and then, but then, and that would be enough of a gag, right? But then someone else comes along and says, I, I lost a dollar, <laughs> right? The second person lost a dollar. And there's this beautiful moment where he's like, 
he he made very quickly with his hands like says was it this big and does it have an eagle on it yeah whatever answer the dollar and then someone comes along and he so he has to give her one of his own dollars then someone comes along claims to have lost a dollar or lost something buster starts to give him a dollar the guy says oh i'm not interested in that rummages around in the trash and picks up a whole wallet packed with cash right so that and that's really very keaton that um idea of a gag that has multiple steps and kind of um iterates on itself you see him do that in all of his movies pretty much yeah i I, that actually the sort of um uh, positioning of Keaton in relation to sort of real world frustrations. That's a, that's a, a real life situation or a situation that is grounded in the kind of reality that then is, is um, extended or made kind of surreal. And, and so again, I was trying to think, as Alex said at the start, that this film is sort of in between you know, its relationship to fantasy and animation. And, and there's a really, it's quite short, but there's a really nice, because I do think a lot of writing and, and you'll appreciate, appreciate this, Peter, the, the, the dominance of Charlie Chaplin when we should really be talking about Keaton. Um, Absolutely. Um, yeah. I thought you'd like that. Uh, and so the, the sort of, a lot of writing on early animated comedy, um, its relationship to kind of star-centered comedian comedy uh, is often, is Charlie Chaplin's relationship to Felix the Cat. And very famously, there's a short Felix cartoon in which Charlie Chaplin appears and says, are you stealing my stuff? And that's the, that's the gag. And, and, and obviously caricatures of, of silent com- comedians was, was kind of rife um, well into the, the 30s and 40s at, at Warner Brothers. But there's a really short article um, online as part of the Animation World um, website written by Will Ryan and it's about Buster Keaton's relationship to animation and how actually it wasn't Chaplin it was it was um, it was Keaton who who influenced uh, the Looney Tunes and 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 there's a, a line here you know one thing about Buster Keaton is the he acted with his feet and they took mm-hmm. that and put that into the um, Roadrunner cartoons. So the cerebral, surreal quality of Buster's battle with real-life frustrations is reflecting the coyote's obsessive pursuit of the elusive um, and then the kind of performance and gestural elements. So there's not that much written on Keaton's relationship to, to, to sort of animation, but the sort of struggle that you've just described and his battle with with these dollar bills and ultimately he if he'd have dug a bit deeper he'd have found that whole wallet stuffed with money um it's something that allegedly influenced chuck jones as he was trying to design this mm. these sisyphan cycles of of the coyotes pursuit of 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 the roadrunners something else people write about with keaton is that there's a kind of um quintessentially keaton thing which is to leave the character exactly where you found him so he goes wow. through all these struggles and then in the end he's just uh, and as you see this, by the way, in some of the early Charlie Chaplin things too, right? He starts out as the tramp walking along, has some adventures, and at the end, he's just the tramp walking along. And this, uh, you can think about this at the level of individual gags as well. Like there's the great gag where in, Sherlock, in Steamboat Bill Jr., where he tries to climb over a gate, the gate gets blown closed by the storm and winds up climbing over the gate to exactly where he was just standing mm-hmm. right or actually even the uh scene we keep talking about with all the cuts it starts in a garden with a bench and then we get cut 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 it lions mountain ocean blah 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 and in the end he's back in the garden right so that kind of uh circular uh motif yeah that that um what will happen with the gag is that it will just put him back to where he was in the first place. Mm-hmm. Um, in, in some ways, is, uh, it's, it stands for, it epitomizes what we were talking about before, the contrast between a gag-based 
form of entertainment and a narrative-based form of entertainment, right? Because with the gag, one, one, especially one of these classic gags, in the end, nothing has happened, right? You just leave the character, the characters just where they were at the start of the gag. With a narrative, usually something is supposed to happen at the end, like the the hero gets the girl or the bad guys are defeated or whatever it is. And Sherlock Jr. combines these two things, mm-hmm. right? Uh, in, in fact, even the very last moment, again, I don't want to spoil the last, the very last joke, but there's a sense in which um, the very last joke makes you wonder whether what's happened is that he's going to get the girl and stay with her or decide that maybe he's better off not. And then he'll be just back as a single movie projectionist who wants to be a detective, right? And, he, and he's left scratching his head and that's the end. So he's sort of left in perfect balance between those two options. Ah, so that kind of cyclicality or certainly that that sort of uh, going full circle would be something that, as you say, would fit into that sort of um, the narrative cycles and structures of something like a seven minute cartoon where part of this, the pleasures of the seriality is that the... the, the Tom will never get Jerry, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah, the Roadrunner never gets yeah. caught. And it's all it's sort of reset each time. Um, yeah. yeah, no, that's. I think that's absolutely absolutely right. Um, Alex, yeah, or, and it's also maybe one reason why people people often contrast the sort of sentimentality yeah. and emotion of, of Chaplin to the more cold, cerebral Keaton. And that's part of the reason. So something like the the one of the most dark movies you could imagine is Hard Luck, where the plot is literally he's trying to kill himself and keeps failing. Right. <laughs> There's a Tom and Jerry cartoon that's like that that begins with Tom sitting on um, uh, railway lines, bring it back to yeah. trains, but he's sitting there and is sort of there are there are occasional Tom and Jerry cartoons where Tom lapses into alcoholism, uh, and then actually at the end of the cartoon, I think he's back on the. Uh, railway lines because it's told in flashback uh, and i think jerry joins him and they both just sit there so That's it's it, not yeah. yeah there's not occasionally that kind of happens within the world of tom and jerry but yeah. so there we go it is an animation who knew there we are. exactly cool. um uh i'm aware time's getting away from us i wanted to ask one final question if i may peter um and it's as chris likes to say every every episode i like to ask an impossible question i've saved mine for last um and it's a broader question i guess about um you know, i about the relationship between film and philosophy. I'm, I'm aware you're a historian of philosophy, and it, I'd be loath not to take this opportunity to ask you on the podcast about this. There's been this sort of movement in film theory and film studies in the last sort of five, ten years to try and move away from a way of talking about the relationship between film and philosophy in which uh, we see film as somehow a sort of illustrative or adaptive device whereby films can... Uh, reflect certain philosophical I- existing philosophical ideas and things like that into a sort of more I don't know partnership whereby film can be seen as a mode of of philosophical thought and philosophical investigation and, and philosophical articulation and there are various societies film philosophy the journal and, and website and uh, uh, conference every year sort of is the is the is the biggest example of this um and and I'm wondering how you feel about this because obviously in your podcast you take a very broad approach to what sort of counts as philosophy. You include examples of literature, of history, um, into your podcast. And luckily, you're you're still in the sort of what is it, the 14th century at the moment, so you don't have to yeah, 15, quite tackle 16, the problem yeah. of 16th. Okay, so still not quite at the problem of film just yet. Um, but I'm wondering whether you know when when we get to the 20th century. 
will you will you do an episode on um on Buster Keaton and Sherlock Jr. on your podcast? Would you see what we've just talked about as an example of philosophy, or is there is there something about cinema that means it's it's a good meta mechanism to talk about these ideas? But there's something about cinema that perhaps isn't as didactic or argumentative as it can be to be philosophy. There you go. There's the impossible question. Yeah, that's a great question. I mean, I would, I, I think I would do an episode on Buster Keaton, mm-hmm. um, partially just because I would want to take the excuse to say <laughs> the kinds of things I've just been saying for the last hour. Um, I mean, if we think about philosophy and film, uh, usually what leaps to mind is things like the matrix mm-hmm. or minority report or blade runner where you have uh, a, a premise that somehow represents a philosoph- philosophical problem that people want to talk about anyway right so blade runner is about questions about identity artificial intelligence the matrix is about virtual reality it's basically a very extended and complicated version of what if we were all just a brain in a vat hooked up to a mad scientist, how could we ever know, right? And of course, movies like that get brought up in philosophy seminars quite a lot. But I think it's telling that, you know, if I were teaching a class on epistemology and I brought up the matrix and people started actually talking about the matrix, right? Like, oh, well, but, you know, like part two reveals that blah, 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 right? And, and like, yeah, I would sort of say, well, actually, who cares, right? So the point of the reason why the matrix is useful for for philosophers is more like it just gives gives everyone a way of imagining the thought experiment, right? But the details of the thought experiment are totally irrelevant. Mm-hmm. Or a minority report is about well, what if people could know the future? And the and if you start actually thinking about the plot of Minority Report and especially the way it ends, you realize that actually they just kind of bottle it and give up on the premise. Right. So philosophically speaking, Minority Report is a catastrophe. And so if you you certainly wouldn't want to teach a class about, um, you know, present truths about the future by talking about Minority Report as such, because actually the philosophical stuff breaks down anyway. So actually, I think that the more philosophically interesting movies are things like Sherlock Jr., because Sherlock Jr. is something where you can get more out of it philosophically by talking about the movie. So like by talking about the scene we've been discussing with all the cuts, right? Or the whole idea, like the idea of uh, what it does when you see him walk into the movie, just saying, oh, well, you know, in Sherlock Jr., he walks into a movie. So let's talk about that. That I think that doesn't make any sense. Whereas you can say, well, the matrix is a virtual reality. So let's talk about virtual reality and the epistemic implications. Um, so I think actually in some ways, I, I certainly do think that philosophy can, can be done in the form of cinema. And I also think that the best philosophical cinema is not the cinema that sort of takes an obvious philosophy problem or thought experiment and dramatizes it in a movie. The best philosophical cinema is um, cinema that sort of raises its own sui generis set of philosophical problems. And I would say the same thing is true about literature. Mm-hmm. Right? So there are poems that raise and address philosophical questions in a way that a philosophical treatise just wouldn't be able to do. So actually, I, w- I'm, I would be willing to say that Sherlock Jr. is a philosophically more interesting movie than The Matrix, for example. 
And that's the soundbite for the, this episode. So that's good. Yeah, that's, that uh, is the soundbite. There we go. On that bombshell. Um, <laughs> uh, Peter, thank you so much for joining us to talk about um, Sherlock Jr. I've really enjoyed it. And I've and I've got a better understanding of the movie as well, um, which I always do every time I watch it. But, but to approach it from this angle is really fascinating. So I'm really um, pleased you came on the podcast. Um, if listeners who have never encountered that your series before would like to find it how's best they um what's the best way they can access it uh, it has its own website which is www.historyofphilosophy.net but also you can just google history of philosophy mm-hmm. and it will come up cool and you're also on um twitter as well so people can i am on twitter on yes okay great please do check it out it's a, it's a wonderful series it's made uh, my commute certainly more philosophically enriching mm-hmm. um Chris, I think that's us for another week. Anything final you need to get off your chest? Do you no. want to talk about Dr. Jerry a bit more? No, no, no. I mean, I'd love to talk about. You know, as I said, like it's it's a film that we we've taught, and in fact, I think I I I sort of understand the film's relationship to those concepts with more clarity, having spoken mm. about it. And actually, it's quite nice to do to to do something that isn't explicitly animation or fantasy, but to think to use those those. Um, um, media mediums and genres if you like as frameworks to then think about how how something like Sherlock Jr. does animation or or its relationship to those sorts of ideas so um, yeah it was it was sort of yeah. something that, that again I think a lot of you mentioned um, off air that it, it's sort of an eyebrow raiser so I'm hopeful that that people's eyebrows over the last hour or so have progressively come down into alignment um, well, there was a caption at the beginning of the movie, wasn't there? Um, don't try to do two things at once and expect to do justice to both. Well, we've tried to do three things at once there, and I think we've done a little bit of justice to all three. So um, thanks. thanks for that. Peter, thanks so much for coming on the show. Thanks for having me on. As always, you can find us on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, and Reddit, and the handle is Research. F-A-N-A-N-I-M Research. You can also use that handle at gmail.com to email us directly with any questions, queries or comments you have about this episode and we'd be delighted to hear from you. Remember on the next episode we'll be covering the theme of nostalgia and it's a listener choice again so you can get those uh, submissions in now about what film or television show from the world of fantasy animation we should talk about and we'll respond and share as many as we can on the podcast next time. Listeners, we'll see you on the next episode and take care in the meantime. Bye-bye. Bye.